Again, we're blessed today to have Zach Hicks, Reverend Zach Hicks, uh, preaching for us. He is the church planter, the mission pastor for our Presbyterian's new church plant in Birmingham called the Church of the Cross. Zach is also a well-known and published and, you know, uh, lots of lots of recordings, lots of com compositions in music and in worship leadership. His book, The Worship Pastor, is a seminal work for many worship pastors. And he is very ecumenical. He was sharing with me, I was checking in with him this past week. He was in Phoenix leading a worship conference in uh, for Lutherans in Phoenix. He'll be up in Chicago with... Um, uh, the Evangelical Free Church uh, worship leading there and, and teaching there with the Evangelical Free Church in uh, Chicago this coming week. And the next week, he's going to be in South Carolina with the Southern Baptist helping lead their worship and uh, equipping them. So anyway, he's very ecumenical. We're blessed that he can come be with us today and uh, share a word about his church plan and then bring God's word to us. Zach, come on up. Thank you all so much for letting me be here with you today. Shout out to the balcony, because I rarely preach in places with balconies. So, hi, balcony. You look good up there. Um, I want to share a little bit about the church plant, pray, get into the text. Uh, God's doing a work. I had resigned from a position at a church in Birmingham that I'd served for five years. Our family had lived there for a long time. And then God kind of gave this laser beam of a call to me and my wife after a season of prayer and discernment. I have four kids. I've got three boys and a girl, um, 17, 15, 13, and 12. And I think I said different ages in the last service because I can't even pay attention and it changes every year. So it's kind of frustrating that they won't just stay the same age. So when I preach, I can just say what those numbers are. They're changing on me all the time. Uh, but I'm very grateful to be here. When we received that call to church plant, it's like the Lord started using a bunch of our relationships and networks and connections to be able to establish a core team pretty fast. And we feel a strong sense of missionary call uh, to people who are kind of in this category of distancing, distancing themselves from the church, holding the church at arm's length asking questions about God and finding in general the church an unsafe place to do that. And I'm a big believer that church plants are the front lines of God's mission to the world. I think, especially in the first five years of a church plant's life in the United States, that's where you're gonna see the biggest fruit of missionary activity because uh, it's so funny. I've, I've been a pastor in Birmingham for five years and non-Christians and people distanced from the church wouldn't touch me with a 10 foot pole. But something switched and becoming a church planter has opened all kinds of relational and conversational doors. And I'll get into that a little more in the sermon. But we had a couple of, of services over the course of the fall and we'll have a couple of more. It's kind of like preview services we're doing once a month. We had 54 people there the first time and we're trying to stay meeting in homes. But the second time we met, we had 80 people. And so uh, it's moving a little bit more fast than I'd like. And uh, word of mouth is, is kind of spreading the connection. And thankfully there are people in that room who haven't been in church in a long time uh, and haven't heard the gospel in a long time. So the Lord's up to something and I'm grateful for a sister church praying for us and supporting us in all kinds of ways. And I invite you, now that you see me, see my body and my face, know who I am, to remember Church of the Cross in your prayers and pray that God would open the floodgates of mission 
for us to, to meet, know, and find more people who need Jesus in this time. Let's pray for the reception of God's word today. Our Father, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to do two things with your word today. To show us our need for Jesus and to give him to us. Amen. Feel free to open your Bibles to Job chapter 2. It's on page 418 in your pew Bible, Job chapter 2. We're jumping right into the dark part. Verse 7, and I'll read through verse 13. Hear God's word. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him at a distance, they didn't recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on the heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Thanks be to God for his word. So in a way this morning, I'm going to be preaching through the whole book of Job. And I know what you're thinking, fear not, length of book does not equal length of sermon, okay? If you're used to preaching that kind of takes you through the text verse by verse, this will be a little different because in a way to hear the message of Job, we almost need its, its whole story. We need its whole arc. Sometimes when we preach and we dive into texts and just pick out a few verses, we lose the arc of the thrust of what God is saying to us. And I definitely think that's true of this book, the book of Job. What we're going to do right now is kind of acquaint and reacquaint ourselves with the whole book. And then we're going to follow a really specific path of application as it pertains to Job and our call to mission and evangelism in the 21st century. Hopefully that'll give us some deeper understanding. I want to outline the book of Job like this. It's basically three parts, and this is going to help us process it. Job's, Job chapters 1 through 3 are really the time where we learn and, and hear the story of Job's affliction. Job is afflicted. And then chapters 4 through 37, that's a long bit, is Job's friends responding and dialoguing with Job, giving him advice and him reacting and responding to that. And the final four chapters, chapters 38 through 42, are God's response to Job and Job's restoration. And I want to think about some of those pivot points, actually, in the movement of the story. Let's look specifically, if you've got your Bibles, open to chapter 38, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 38, verses 1 to 3. In this portion, Job's friends had just finished speaking. So we're at that pivot point between Job's friends talking to Job and then God responding. And God responds for the first time. Look with me at verse 2 of chapter 38. What does God say? 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then a scary part that no one ever wants to hear coming from the mouth of God. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. God is talking to Job's friends there. Now turn with me to chapter 42, verse 7. This comes after Job's received the thundering clarity from God, and he's been humbled, and he's been put in his place, and Job responds in trust. And then God says here in chapter 42, verse 7, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, that's one of Job's friends, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Let's just stop right there for a second. We need to understand that the book of Job is not only a story about suffering before God, the problem of evil, and those kinds of things. We're learning that embedded in Job is also a critique of his friends. We often don't spend enough time thinking about that, actually. Yet Job's friends, their words, their theology, their advice, it fills the majority of the pages of the book of Job, actually. Do you remember that? A lot of chapters dedicated to the dialogue with Job's friends. And here, at the climactic end of this mysterious and difficult book, we find God critiquing the work and words and theology and advice of Job's friends. And I'm going to ask you to sort of hang on to that idea as we move forward. Several months ago, now, I went to church planters assessment, and it's kind of this crazy thing. It's sort of like boot camp for pastors, and then you find out whether you're worthy enough to pull the sword out of the stone at the end of the time, and it's a big deal. And they, they do all sorts of things, like before we come, we have to take these ministerial evaluation tests and psych tests, and they do all sorts of evaluations. And then when you're there, they tie you to a chair and demand that you preach the gospel seven different ways in 10 seconds. And then they let you loose in a city with only $1 that you have to survive on for three days, because that's what all church planners have to learn to do. None of that really happened. The psych tests did, the ministerial evaluations did. But one of the things they really did make me do was they said, imagine it's your first Sunday and you have to preach one sermon on that first Sunday. What will you preach? Prepare that sermon in 10 minutes. That's impossible. But anyway, they asked us to prepare a 10 minute sermon that was kind of a condensation of the first sermon we'd preach the first Sunday right out of the gate of our church plant. And I chose Job. And I know what you're thinking. Dude, that guy's church plant is totally going to fail. Totally going to fail. But I actually think that Job might be one of the best books for mission and evangelism in this current cultural moment here, right in our cities, in Birmingham and in Starkville. And I want to give you two quick reasons why. First, it's all about suffering, right? And the more I spend time amongst people who don't know Jesus, or more likely down here in the South, people who are disconnecting from God and distancing themselves from the church, and from faith, the more I think that one of our best evangelistic moves will simply be to learn how to minister and love well people who are suffering. Second, tucked into this wonderful book is a subtle but significant critique of a lot of the ways that you and I tend to blow it when it comes to reaching people in our present moment. 
I want the book of Job to teach us today what it means to be a friend and a Christian and what it means to be a witness of Jesus Christ. You know, I live in a home, I told you I have four kids, and I live in a home where everyone's talking. And when I resigned from my job and started to end up being home more for dinner, I noticed how loud and obnoxious my family was. And the way that in a large home, if you've grown up with multiple siblings and you're at a dinner table together and you're trying to get mom and dad's attention or tell your story, everyone's just talking over each other all the time. Everyone's interrupting. No one seems to be listening. They're just trying to one-up the thing. And so eventually we got to the point where uh, Abby and I had to sit down and have this come to Jesus moment with our family and basically say, okay, we're going to teach you kids a couple things that mommy and daddy learned in therapy. And it's called active listening. And so here's what we're going to do. You're going to say something and someone else is going to let you say it. And then they're going to respond by repeating back to you what they said. And we just kind of joked about it, but we were pointing out the fact that, gosh, we don't know how to listen to each other anymore. And I found my family a kind of microcosm of society today and of social media today. I mean, I know Facebook is structured so that you can make a post and then you have what are called replies, right? So supposedly it's set up to give a dialogue. But if you've checked out Facebook recently, replies are just posts underneath posts. Why? Because everyone's sort of talking and nobody's listening. Everyone's talking and nobody's listening. And you know what? The church has kind of had to get in the game too and figure out how to live on these platforms and megaphone the gospel. And in a way, we've just sort of jumped into this and tried to speak louder than everybody else. And so everybody's talking and nobody's listening. And with all this output and communication, I wonder what it would be like if the church did the shocking, unconventional thing in this cultural moment. What if we spent way more time just listening? Here are two things that good listening does. Number one, in our minds, in our minds, good listening will help often transform someone in our perception from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. You see, every time we meet someone or encounter someone, we encounter their two-dimensional self. It's a natural instinct to make immediate evaluations and calculations in our head of the kind of person that they are. And we don't always know it, but we often get really specific in the things that we think. We start to imagine what their politics are or what their spending habits are, what they do in their leisure time. Or, uh, and all that comes from that first encounter, right? We take in all that data and draw conclusions. It's what sociologists will tell us is almost a natural social instinct of the way we make order of our world. We'll draw conclusions from their accent. We'll draw conclusions from the car that they drive. We'll draw conclusions from the clothes they wear, how much melanin they have, from what they talk about and the way they talk about it. And here's what I've discovered. Rarely can I in a first encounter, or even in a second or third encounter, understand them in any way that goes beyond two dimensions. And here's the negative side of that. When I see them in 2D, I simplify and therefore distort who they really are. I don't really know them. I've yet to encounter their three-dimensional self, but when I do discover their three-dimensional self, I always, always, always find myself having made some kind of error in judgment. 
some sort of distorted, premature evaluation of them. When they turn 3D, though, they complexify. They become, well, actually more human. You know, our current modes of interaction, the way we interact, and the pace at which we do it, which is so fast now, has created a context where we're connected to a lot more people in two-dimensionality. And this has consequences for mission and evangelism, actually. And again, the first point is that good listening helps transform the person right in front of us from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. But number two, when we finally see someone as three-dimensional, in other words, when we're listening well, that extra third dimension that often comes into focus is many times their suffering. Job is one of the books of wisdom, but most commentators on this book will tell you that Job's actually a kind of anti-wisdom. The other books of the Bible that we classify as wisdom books, like Proverbs, tend to take on the characteristic of other ancient wisdom literature. Whether or not you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you've taken a world lit class or an ancient literature class, and some of you have this faint memory of ancient Near Eastern or ancient Greek bits of wisdom sounding like short, pithy sayings that offer decent advice to live the good life. Sayings like this from our own Bible, Proverbs 17, 13. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Or Proverbs 19, 3. A man's folly brings his way to ruin. Proverbs, such as the biblical ones, are true most of the time. They're good advice. They're good wisdom. That's what Proverbs are. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom books like this often read like little formulas. They often speak in two-dimensional terms. Behave well, and good things will happen to you. Behave bad, and bad things will happen to you. And though that's often true, in steps the book of Job, the anti-wisdom wisdom book, where a guy behaves well and bad things happen to him. This is actually one of the predominant messages of the whole book and just might be its point. Sometimes the suffering and pain of this life in the face of a good, all-powerful God confounds all of our usual categories and it just doesn't make sense. Sometimes suffering as we experience it is just unfair. Job exists to remind us, especially as one of the more ancient books in our Bible, of the failure of, of conventional wisdom and of pat answers and simple solutions. Our lives are often too complex, actually, for slogans and bumper stickers and those terrible, horribly untrue phrases that are plastered all over the gyms that we work out at. There is no such thing as failure, only learning experiences. Oh, really? Tell that to pastors who have podcasts documenting their failures and learning experiences, right? As I was saying before, we're at a cultural moment where there's been a failure of easy and pat answers to hard questions of suffering. And so there's been a failure of easy, formulaic Christianity. Christianity that tends to lean more Proverbs and lean a little bit less Job. More simplified, easy answers and less messy, incomplete answers. And maybe there was a time 
in America and the West where that worked, but I'm sensing that time has passed. And I also just sense a growing number of Job's in our community, a growing number of sufferers for whom the simplicity of typical Christianity just doesn't work. Whether it's because we're too tangled in politics or too uncaring in the face of real social issues of compassion or too ignorant of science or too moralistic and behavior policy or too reactive in denouncing before truly listening or too motivated from fear and anxiety rather than loving and operating out of instincts of love. And that's why it's Job's friends who fascinate me and interest me. Earlier this year, I was at a pastor's retreat and the speaker pointed out from this text actually something kind of funny, but mostly painful. When Job's life fell apart, his friends came around. And here's what the text says in verse 13 that we read. Job's friends sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. The speaker commented, and this is crazy, the problem with Job's friends is that they eventually opened their mouth. And that's what it's like as the rest of the book unfolds is their very mouthy response, their very Proverbs-like response, I might add, as to just why it is that Job is suffering as though they're speaking for God. Hmm, mouthy response as though we're speaking for God. I, as a member of Christ's church, resemble that remark. And don't get me wrong, the scriptures are clear. The Bible itself is actually a communicative document that demands communication, right? At the center is its main message, its main message, which is called the good news. And good news must be spoken as I'm speaking now. But it seems like in this day and age, in this moment, more than ever, people need to feel seen and heard before they're ever going to listen to any news that you have to give them. And Job says as much, actually. Some of you may be thinking I'm stretching the text right now when I'm talking about wisdom literature and critique of Job's friends and all that stuff. But Job offers this very critique of his friends halfway through their dialogue. You could look at chapter 13, verse 5. And there he says to his friends, If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. I wonder if it would have been different for Job if his friends had just sat there and wept with him and then sat there some more and then sat there some more. I wonder if Job's friends could have sat there long enough so that Job could move in their eyes from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. And in the same way, I wonder if it would be different for the church if in this day and age of constant talk and communication, we took the posture of drawing near and of listening well and of weeping with those who weep. You know, curiosity is a wonderful virtue for the Christians serious about reaching people for Jesus in our present age. You can learn this from one of my favorite pastor theologians, Ted Lasso, who is an expert in the actions of curiosity. 
asking questions in a non-judgmental, empathetic way may be one of the most important parts of the evangelistic process that many of us have forgotten. The lost art of Jesus, actually. The lost art of listening well enough to find the point of emotional resonance and understanding. The ache that disables them. Touching the ache that cripples you. Asking questions often helps us navigate that windy path from the bristly surface. And many people I talk to have bristly surfaces. And so do you. And so do I, actually. But it helps us navigate that windy path from that bristly surface of someone toward the deep chambers of their heart, where often the suffering resides that has caused the bristling. Asking questions is actually the path that Job's friends didn't take. When they opened their mouth, they began talking at Job and over Job. Interestingly, and this may be painful for us to hear, they began using their biblical knowledge to put Job in his place, or in the spirit of what Christians often say they do today, I'm just speaking the truth in love, bro, right? But notice what all this conventional wisdom did. It only served to confuse and confound Job and drive him away. In many of my conversations with non-Christians and former Christians and Christians distancing themselves from the church and hanging on by a thread, this is what I often find going on, actually. Oftentimes when you and I lack patience and curiosity, we are in effect taking a person's three-dimensional problems and trying to shove them back into a two-dimensional space. It doesn't fit and the discomfort for them of the force fit actually drives them away from you and away from God. And so curiosity is a form of God-shaped love because it says, I will come beside you and sit with you in this mess and know you and see you. The problem with Job's friends was that they began speaking for God instead of letting God be God. They transgressed the boundary between creature and creator. You know, many times in our efforts to communicate the love of Jesus to someone else, we transgress that same boundary. We let anxiety and impatience and all that stuff and the impatience of wanting people to change, wanting people to get unstuck, force us into the false belief, I am responsible to fix them. How many times have you and I shared Jesus from that place of anxiety? Of course, we don't say it like this, but our actions betray deep down that I am responsible for this person's salvation, right? Just like Job's friends were so sure that they spoke for, for God and so sure that they were responsible to lead Job to God's truth. But fixing people's actually above our pay grade, right? We're reformed Protestants after all, and we of all Christians should know this. We believe in the doctrines of grace. We believe that justification happens by faith alone, 100% by the work of God alone. We believe that salvation is all God and no us, right? And yet somehow there comes this moment when we get impatient with God's timing. And we act as though all that stuff about God doing all the work in salvation is totally bogus. And sometimes for the hurting people, for the person with tons of questions, when we speak too soon, like Job's friends, 
We force their 3D problems into that impossible 2D space. And the pain and discomfort of that force fit is so strong. The pressure in that confined space is so great that they burst out away from you, away from God, away from the church. I want to be clear. For the Christian, there eventually comes a time to speak, to clearly offer the words of life, to offer words of comfort and hope and love and the satisfaction and wholeness that can only be found in Christ and in Christ alone. I don't think that what's attributed to St. Francis is right when it's said that he said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary to use words. To quote the Apostle Paul, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in them of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the urgent question then is when? When am I finally supposed to speak? And I'm going to give you a very dissatisfying answer. Only the Spirit knows. Only the Spirit knows. Which may be why we have two ears. So that one ear is attuned to the person right in front of us. And the other ear is tuned to the Holy Spirit. So that we know whether a month from now, a year from now, or a lifetime from now. When the time is to offer those words of life. And the Spirit will guide and lead this ministry of listening, this ministry of curiosity, this ministry of just sitting there with someone, inhabiting that three-dimensional space with them, is, I think, a deeply Christian thing. And here's why. It's exactly what God's love looks like. When God the Son became incarnate, when Jesus took on flesh and showed his willingness to become like Job's friends were at first, he showed a willingness to plop down with us in the dirt of our suffering and our need. The God who actually knew everything about you, the God who already saw you in three dimensions, didn't despise drawing near and looking you in the eyes and asking you questions like these. And here, let me quote the words of Jesus with these questions. These aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. Why are you so afraid? What has you worried? Do you want to be healed? What is it that you want? What do you want me to do for you? Why is your heart so hard? Do you want to get well? And maybe some of you are hearing Jesus ask you one of those questions right now. When God took on flesh, when God became a human being, he proved himself to be the kind of God committed to listening, to just sitting there, to not saying anything. And there's a particular moment in the life of Jesus, the God-man, that is the archetype of this kind of ministry, the ministry of just sitting there and not saying anything. 
It's his crucifixion. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah described the crucifixion with these words. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The gospel writers pick up on Isaiah's observation when they recount what they saw on Good Friday. Mark, for instance, says that the high priest interrogated Jesus and finally said, probably out of exasperation, have you no answer to make? But Jesus, it says, remained silent and made no answer. There are many reasons why Jesus was silent that day. But I've read enough Bible to know that this is true. Jesus was silent at his crucifixion because he was busy listening to you. And trust me, I'm not trying to give you some cool, poetic, devotional talk. Jesus was quiet because he was listening to you and sitting with you in your pain. He wasn't going to talk. He wasn't going to squirm out of his crucifixion. He was going to sit there and he was quiet because when he heard your pain, your pain, he was so moved by it that he committed himself to doing something about it. Nothing was going to stop him from going to the cross for you. His ministry of just sitting there with you actually moved into action. He was so moved by your burden your problem, even the problem that you're facing right now, your suffering, that he said, I need to take that on and bear that with them and bear that for them. You know, no one needs friends like the friend of Job, but everyone needs a friend like the friend of sinners. And maybe, just maybe, Sinners loved and befriended by Jesus, a.k.a. the church, a.k.a. you and me, will be shaped by God's grace enough to be the kinds of people confident enough in who Jesus is and what he's done to have a joyful, gentle, unflinching, non-anxious, gracious ministry as well. But even if we aren't, praise God, that Jesus is committed to just sitting there and listening and seeing us, seeing you and hearing you. Amen. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make us into the kinds of people who are so captivated by the good news of Jesus that it gives us the confidence and the compassion to be a people who listen well and love well in this day and age for your glory and your kingdom. Amen.